And what I know about my disease is that it is cunning, baffling, and powerful, and that I have to stay in the middle no matter what. And if I do that, I get to be happy, joyous, and free. And the best lesson that I learned of all is that it is not God through you to me. I missed that the first time around. It is God through me to you. And that's like a pipe with the water faucet on. As long as water is continually running through, there's never an empty space, ever. And the magic that keeps that pipe flowing all the time for me is love. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Now, I say, I say, I say, boy, what's the big idea? Little tip of the hat to Foghorn Leghorn there. That was the voice of Holly D that you heard at the beginning of this here episode, and you are going to hear so much more from Holly in Un Momento, but... First things first, this here episode number 267 featuring Holly D is brought to you by Tanya and Brad and Bob. What did Tanya and Brad and Bob do? Well, let me fill you in. They went to our little website, www.soberspeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab. And guess what? They made a contribution. So thank you so much, Tanya and Brad and Bob. This here episode is coming right out to you Keep in mind that I, John, am just another bozo on the bus, will indeed be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So take a seat, if you will around this virtual table, and let's get started. Remember, no matter who you are or what your past looks like, you are welcome here. It is an open table for all. So guess what, everybody? We are going to have another big shindig. And what do you mean by that, John M.? Well, we're going to have another Sober Speak Live. This one's going to be a combination of in person at the Grace Avenue United Methodist Church in Frisco, Texas, and we'll be featuring the one and only Mr. Gary Kay from Sulphur Springs, Texas, and it will begin at 6.30 p.m. 
Central Time. And so you ask yourself, well, what if I'm not in Texas? Or what if I can't be in Texas? Or what if I can't make it that night? Well, guess what? We are going to stream it via Zoom as well. And you will be able to Listen, I started to say listening, but view, well, you can listen and view at the same time. So we're going to have uh, the Zoom information available for you. Just go to www.soberspeak.com and click on Sober Speak, the, the Sober Speak Live tab across the top. Or if you're in our Facebook group, we'll have it in there as well. Or if you're uh, following us on Instagram, and if you're not following us on Instagram, I would definitely put that on my to-do list if I were you. It's at Soberspeak, which is all one word. If you want to get in, have admission own into the Facebook group, all you got to do is look up, go into Facebook and look up Soberspeak Secret Group and ask for admission into the group and we will let you on in. So, uh, and if there's anybody out there who has a question that you would like me to pose, is that the proper word? I think so. Yeah. Pose to Gary K. Just email me at John J O H N at soberspeak.com and I will consider it. <laughs> we may get it on there. We may not. We only have so much time with him, uh, but you're more than uh, welcome to reach out. Uh, we are most likely going to have child care available for this event. So if you need child care, will you please email me at john, J-O-H-N at soberspeak.com. And then the other bonus, I call it a combo platter. We're going to have both the Soberspeak live event and then immediately following that at the same location in the same room will be the Frisco group Christmas party. And uh, there's probably a lot of you have heard me talk about Frisco group in the past. It's a meeting that uh, I attend. It's my home group. And uh, and you'd be able to meet a lot of the people, actually, if you're not from the Frisco group already. And you want to come meet some of the people that you hear on the podcast and mingle uh, and celebrate with us. Uh, we would love to have you there at this event. All right. What do, oh, I, <laughs> I wanted to talk about this. This is just funny. I was uh, talking to my friend. Mike B earlier today regarding a <laughs> he goes on these uh, uh he tries to get a 30 day what he calls composure chip <laughs> that means if he can go 30 days without losing his composure <laughs> He gets a composure chip. And I had never heard of that before, and I loved it. And you know what? That should be, especially during these this holiday season, that should be a goal for all of us. Maybe is, over Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, we should all uh, try to achieve a composure chip. But 30 days, that's a long time. <laughs> My friend Mike V is going to try to, you know, maybe we should like, there should be somebody out there going, print composure chips <laughs> and give those out. But I guess you'd have to kind of self-monitor yourself. Well, we self-monitor ourselves for sobriety. I guess we can self-monitor ourselves for a composure. But uh, anyway, I don't know why I just had to uh, talk about that today. 
All right, now on to Holly D. And what a apropos name during the Christmas season here, Holly D. This one is called The Magic That Keeps the Pipe Flowing is Love. And you hear her talk about that during the episode. Holly is a Chuck C. fan who, at the age of four, was shooting guns and driving Corvettes with her daddy, who was a well-known surgeon in the area. Well, he was not only was he a well-known surgeon, but he was actually mainlining mainlining amphetamines at the same time. And she discusses all that. It's quite an interesting story. But um, and Holly had her introduction to what she calls condiments. Uh, and during her hitchhiking tours around the U.S. And, uh, and she, oh, you know what? I messed that up. So he, here's what I meant to say. Holly gives us an introduction to what she calls condiments. And uh, also she does a hitchhiking tour around the U.S. She talks about that and her one-year stay in a sanitarium. Now, here's the deal, folks. When I mess up, first of all, it's hard to do 260, 270, whatever this is, episode. Oh, I already said at the beginning of this, 267. 267 episodes and not make a mistake. And I make plenty of mistakes. And you know, I could always go back and edit it out, but I'm not gonna because I don't want to take the time. You're just gonna have to deal with my flub ups. But my apologies to Miss Holly D though. Anyway, so she talks about her hitchhiking tours around the US, her one year stay in a sanitarium. She also discusses her what she calls a bad date uh, and how that turned out to be a, a turning point in her life. And I'll, I'll let her describe that. Uh, to you uh, during the episode. Holly discusses, <laughs> she discusses marrying her boyfriend's, marrying uh, her best friend's boyfriend. <laughs> and that kind of killed that relationship <laughs> with her, with her friend, with her best friend. Uh, she talks about, oh, I like this one. She talks about uh, being, uh, playing this game, if you will, uh, in character role play game. And she would play this game going in and out of character when she was uh, placed in these various foster homes. And (laughs) I had never heard anything like that before. Uh, She talks about her experience at her daughter's two-year birthday and uh, at her mother-in-law's house and how the shame from that was brought on uh, and what that meant to her. She talks about her first AA meeting where she, quote, became an alcoholic and much more. You're going to want to listen to this one all the way through, folks. I now present to you folks, Holly D. And we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this here episode. Enjoy Holly D. Okay, everybody. So today we're sitting here with Miss Holly D. So Holly, first things first, I'm going to go ahead, let you introduce yourself, give your sobriety date, if you would like to do that, and tell people where you live in this world of ours. All right. I'm Holly, alcoholic, sobriety date, September 28, 1996. I live in Jacksonville, Florida. Yes, lucky me. (laughs) I have a home group, of course. And it's called the West Connect Group in Jacksonville, Florida. It meets Monday nights, 7 p.m. Eastern time. And it's a hybrid meeting. 
So if anyone ever would like to come to my home group from the comfort of their living room, hit me up. I'd be happy to give you those codes. Michael, that way they, they get in touch with you. You can give them the codes to my home group. You got it. And so when you so I like how you said from the comfort of their living room. Uh, yeah. So if anybody wants to just reach out to me, John, J-O-H-N at SoberSpeak.com. And I'll get you on over to uh, Holly and she can give you the uh, the deets, I think they call us. Uh, so and I want to ask you real quick, uh, you have musical instruments galore in your background there. So what are you a musician yourself? Um, well, I was when I was younger. I played piano, violin and guitar. But, you know, then I hitchhiked around the United States for a decade and, you know, and got sober and had children. And then now they all play the instruments. The piano behind me was actually made from for my mother who is concert pianist level um, from a German piano maker many years ago in Houston, Texas. And of course, they're in a small condo now. So I get the piano, which will then go to my son. But all my kids are musicians. Uh, everyone in my family is musical and it runs in our family. My mother's maiden name is Bach and we are oh. direct descendants. So really a strong gene. I, my cousins are musical. Absolutely. Everyone in my family is musical. We all play multiple instruments. So, wow, yeah. that's very cool. So, well, and I want to tell you also, I used to, I got transferred to Jacksonville. Actually, I lived in Ponte Vedra Beach and uh, worked in Jacksonville. So I'm somewhat familiar with the area. Wouldn't call me an expert or anything like that. But are you actually in Jacksonville proper? I'm in Jacksonville proper, but I'm just over the intercoastal. I am not far from Ponte Vedra at all. So gotcha. I'm so more, like, my kids all went to school at the beach. Gotcha. So is that like Jack's Beach? Am I right about yeah. that? Is that okay? Gotcha. Yes, I'm literally just over the intercoastal from Jacksonville Beach, Atlantic Beach on the other end. Cool. Yeah, I, I really like that area. I mean, it's, it's beautiful out there. Beautiful. Okay, so let's go ahead and talk about Holly D a little bit. So why don't you uh, go ahead, kind of take me, as you know, I mean, so what we do here on the podcast, is kind of like, you know, you telling, you know, what I was like, what happened and what I'm like now, right? The whole thing. Uh, so why don't you kind of take me back to the beginning? Tell me about your roots a little bit, what you think formed you in terms of your childhood and such like that. And then, and then we'll kind of go from there. Does that sound okay? So I was not raised in Florida. I was raised in North Chicago, little bitty town, Libertyville, Illinois. My daddy was a prominent surgeon. And my mother was a typical alcoholic housewife. My mother drank martinis, cried and slept. She was invisible, really a shadow in our household. And I can say these things about my mother, by the way, because she's 41 years sober now. So she says these things about herself. Um, but back then she was drinking and, and kind of invisible. Daddy was large and in charge, very well respected in the community and a mainline amphetamine user. And for anyone listening that doesn't know what that means, it means he got the really good stuff that wakes you up and shot himself up with it. And things were very exciting in my house. <laughs> Wait a second. I just want to make sure I heard that right. So he's a well-known surgeon, but he's also mainlining amphetamines at the same time, right? Yes, um, that's correct. Yes, that's correct. Maybe quite social, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And he was my first god. He was amazing. Now I have a memory that goes back to six months old. So I have one of those kind of memories. I remember very, very clearly my entire life, all the way to the crib. 
I also had long blackouts. I don't know if that correlates, you know, the kind of blackouts that you wake up in another state living with a guy you don't remember meeting, you know, those kind of blackouts. <laughs> you know? um, but very clear memory of my life and my early childhood, I was in charge. I ran my household. Um, that was my job. We had a housekeeper and a cook. It was my job to pay the staff. My daddy believed that the G-men were out to get him. And if you're under the age of 50, you'll have to call John and ask him what a G-man is. <laughs> but he thought they were watching him, that he was under surveillance, that they were going to come and take him away. And so my job was to protect him, watch out for him, listen in the wall for bugs, sweep electronics for listening devices. Taught me how to drive when I was three in the family Corvette. He just floored it, let go of the wheel. I'm on his lap and he told me I needed to drive. And so I learned to drive the hard way. Taught me how to shoot guns at the age of four. A lot of neighborhood animals disappeared during my gun training. But I assure you, I do not kill animals today, nor do I own a gun. <laughs> but it was exciting. I mean, the first four years of my life were fun and exciting. I drove a Corvette. I shot guns and I hung out with my daddy. And then I went to kindergarten. Uh-huh. And everything changed my first day of kindergarten. I am a Chuck C fan. I'll go ahead and get that out now. Um, very, very much a Chuck C fan. Uh, new pair of glasses sits on my nightstand with a highlighter. Not because it's a text to be studied, by the way. It sits on my nightstand with a highlighter because of identification, which is what this program's all about. And what Chuck did was he gave me a language or what was wrong with me, what was going on with me, how I felt in the world. And I needed that language. And, and what he said is, you know, we have one problem, one, and it encompasses all of our problems. And that's a conscious separation from God and mankind. And I understand that. I don't think those words were by accident. I think that that's the day that you go from wanting a drink to needing a drink, the day you become consciously aware of your separation. That's the day for me that I stepped into hell. And that was my first day of kindergarten. I walked into an environment that was little kid heaven filled with other little kids that I had no idea how to interact with. And on my first day of kindergarten, I knew there was something really wrong with me. I needed a drink that day. I had to wait a few months. You know, at five years old, my parents entertained frequently and had a lot of cocktail parties, which I hated. And on this particular day, I'm five years old. My daddy says, you're five. You can start serving drinks to the guests now. I said, okay. I marched over to the bar. I filled a highball glass full of vodka and lemon and called it a martini because my mother did. And I headed across the room with that glass of vodka and I drank it. I drank the entire glass. And the magic happened for me instantly, John Michael. I, I didn't get taller. I didn't get beautiful. I didn't get smarter. I was five. I didn't even want those things. So what did happen to me was a miracle because in an instant I fell in love with everyone in the room and they all fell in love with me. I had been consciously separated from God and mankind and I drank a glass of vodka and I was connected. It was love. It was amazing. It was magical. And at the end of that night, I said, whatever that stuff is, I'm going to drink it as much and as often as I can. And I did. Mm-hmm. No, I was an adult in this household. I could pour a glass of vodka whenever I wanted one. So I pretty much became a weekly drinker at the age of five. Mm. 11 or 12, I'm a daily drinker. And by 13, I'm hitchhiking around the United States. And by 13, you were hitchhiking around the United States, which is wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't drink and cry and sleep. 
<laughs> not my ammo. I'm a little bit of a high energy girl. I don't know if that comes through at all here. It does. And I'm 65 years old now. So you can imagine when I was younger, I had a lot of energy. And I was an avid reader. And by the time I was 13, I'd read most of Michener's novels. And, and my favorite was The Drifters. And, you know, it's about a group of, of college students from around the world that meet in Europe and hitchhike across Europe. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to see the world and I get a little alcohol in my body and I'll go the thumb and off I go. Wow. So uh, what were those days like, like hitchhiking around the United States? I mean, did you get into some situations that you wish you had not gotten into? Yes, I did. Um, at 13, I did not look 21. At 13, I looked eight. Um, I was... I was pretty protected initially. I really believe I had angels on my shoulder. Seriously. At 13, I didn't travel very far. You know, I'd go to the next town or, you know, not very, very far. But when I was 14, my mother had divorced the first daddy, remarried a naval officer who liked to beat me up for discipline because I didn't want to answer questions that he had, like, where are you going? Which I thought was none of his business. When he married my mother, I told him I was running a household. I didn't need his help, but if he wanted to entertain my mother, that was fine. And he didn't take to that very well. And so we got into a lot of arguments. And like I said, he would just beat me up and I'd grab a bottle and take off. But what happened is we ended up leaving Libertyville, Illinois, and the Navy sent us to New Orleans, Louisiana. And in New Orleans, I was introduced to condiments. And I'm a real alcoholic. Yeah, I'm a real alcoholic. My main course is alcohol always and forever. I obsess over alcohol until it's in my possession. Really, bottle of JD in my purse and I've got the sense of ease and comfort. But once I put it into my body, the phenomenon of craving kicks in. And all I know from that point forward is more. More. And more has no definition. It could be too doubtful. Mostly it's going to be, I'm going to wake up in LA with three toothless men. You know, you don't know what's going to happen when I have more. <laughs> but what happened in New Orleans is that I stopped going to school. I didn't understand the school system in New Orleans. They were desegregating schools. I didn't understand the racial tension that was going on. I wasn't raised in that environment. And so I was afraid. And so instead of going to school, I started spending my days in the French Quarter. And so I was introduced to condiments. And in those days, what condiments looked like is they had 714 stamped on them or they came in white powder form. And, and what those condiments did was they let me travel further, drink longer. That's all they did for me. But now I'm waking up in LA. I'm waking up in, in Galveston in, in Florida frequently and woke up in Iowa one time. Seriously, Iowa. not a destination. <laughs> okay, from Iowa out there, I'm so sorry. <laughs> right. <laughs> No offense to people in no Iowa. Offense, I get really. it. <laughs> Actually, I was just in Iowa recently in Des Moines, and they were absolutely amazing people. I got to give a shout out to Des Moines because they were fabulous. But yeah, so the police are bringing me back from further and further away. My parents are beginning to get concerned. They think there's something wrong with me. So they take me to a psychiatrist, of course. And that psychiatrist decides that I need a three-day evaluation in the mental institution for which he was the director. And so my parents dropped me off at DePaul's mental institution. And it was lovely brick buildings, well, landscape, beautiful on the outside. And on the inside, uh, it, was, it was, people were crazy in there. They, they strapped your wrists together with leather straps and your ankles, and they tied you to cots at night in the hallway. And 
My roommate broke a ketchup bottle and slit her throat and bled out and died at my feet. Kind of looked like a fish. It was a little gruesome. I mean, like I say, people were really insane in there and they dropped me off for that three-day evaluation and promptly picked me up a year and a day later. And the only reason they picked me up is because the insurance ran out. So 15 years old, I'm sitting on the couch with my arms crossed while my psychiatrist has the exit interview right there in front of me with my parents. And he says this, he says, Mr. And Mrs. B, it's unfortunate that we have to let Holly go today. But as you know, the insurance, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, in preparation for Holly's homecoming, you need to make funeral arrangements because Holly's not going to survive. You see, Holly is terminally insane. She's a sociopath. And she's either going to place herself in a position where she's killed or she's going to self-implode with her lifestyle. And my mom's how old at this time? I'm sorry. I'm 15. Yeah, yeah. And I'm listening. I've got my arms crossed on the couch and my mother's crying and my dad, my stepdad's, I told you, girl, you know. And what happened for me in that moment is this man has degrees all over the walls. He's educated in this. So what he did that day was he gave me an answer for what was wrong with me. Because you see, I've known something's desperately wrong with me since my first day of kindergarten at four years old. But now I'm 15 and I know I'm terminally insane. I'm a sociopath and I'm going to die. And then he sent me home. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I'm a bit of an optimist, you know, I try to be positive until you give me a reason not to be even then. And, And so I made Steppenwolf's Born of You All my theme song and off I went. And I started hitchhiking around the United States. I spent the next eight years hitchhiking around the United States. That was, I just make sure I caught that. That was Born to be Wild, the Steppenwolf song. Yeah, you you got it. (laughs) Yep. On my playlist, on my phone. Yes, yes. That was my song. And I, uh, I spent eight years hitchhiking around the United States, and it was incomprehensible demoralization, which I think is an eloquent term for hell, quite frankly. I was a little girl. I didn't look very old. I found myself in very precarious positions. Uh, It wasn't fun. It was incomprehensible demoralization. There's no better term. Bill nailed it. I had very long blackouts, as I mentioned earlier. So I don't remember a lot of being 16 or 17 years old. Little snippets, you know, little, little tidbit stories that I save for when I'm sitting across the table with a woman listening to her fist step darkest past, greatest assets. So I get to use those stories, which is what a gift, right? 18 years old, I'm, I'm blowing through New Orleans, looking for a guy I've been dating, and we'll use that term loosely. <laughs> Not in town. But his best friend was driving down the street and saw me and pulled over and said, hey, Holly, you want to go party? And I said, sure. And jumped in the car with Tim, and we bought a bunch of tequila and woke up married. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> but his dad was a real high muckety muck with the Avondale shipyard in New Orleans, white collar guy. And he said, and of course we woke up at his parents' house where he lived. Oh, yeah. my and his goodness. dad came in the room and said, well, if you're married, son, I'll get you a job down at the yard. And he got him a job, white collar, making a whole lot of money. And mm. so we decided to stay married for the money. <laughs> No, wait, not, let me right? just let me back up here. So, did you say that was your boyfriend's best friend? That that did I catch that? 
<laughs> yes, you did. You caught that right. It sort of ended that friendship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The boyfriend was out of town at the time. And when he came back in town and came over to Tim's house, and of course we were living there, I stayed inside while Tim went outside, watched through the, you know, through the blinds. And Tim went out to talk to Dwight. And the next thing I see Dwight peeling out in his Volkswagen. <laughs> that was the end of that friendship. Yeah, that didn't go over well. But ah, what are you going to know? <laughs> ah, you know, money's money. <laughs> okay, so now you're married. So did you, did you really just stay married for a month or was it longer than that? No, we stayed married for the money, not for a oh, month. Oh, for the money. I thought you said for the money. month. I got you for the money. No, we have to be married, legally married for, let's see, seven, eight, nine, eight, four, like eight years. Eight years. Eight children? But what happened is I I decided to go to college. I had gotten a GED at a foster home. I got put in one time. You know, when you're hitchhiking around the United States and you're young, you get picked up by the police. And of course, you make up stories because I always, always... I always took on the character of novels that I've read and they didn't have internet and all that back then, as you know. So when the police would pick you up and you would say, I'm Cherry Balance as an example that from the outsiders, I don't know if anybody read the outsiders, we, you know, I would take on the characters, the whole backstory, everything. And I would stay in character depending on where they put me. So if they put me in a really nice foster home, I would just stay in character for a while and then end up, you know, taken off at some point. And if they put me in a really bad place, then I would tell them who I was right away and they would send me home. <laughs> that was you know, a little bit fun. I had a little bit of fun with it. I spoke French once for six months. That was fun. Uh, that's because uh. I used to be able to speak it. So I decided to go to college. Why not? My husband was making a good living and I enrolled in the university in New Orleans and, and I took my studies seriously. I mean, I was drinking and partying and I don't really remember college, but I had a 4.0. I don't know how that works. Uh, 1978, I was assigned a thesis and the thesis I was assigned were the effects of alcohol and drugs on pregnancy and breastfeeding. And I don't know why I was assigned that. It wasn't a thing then. I don't know if they pulled topics out of the hat or what, but I took my studies seriously. And as I was researching for that thesis, I found I was pregnant for my first child. And so I touched nothing through that pregnancy. I mean, I had my nose in, in manuals talking about scientifically, physiologically, and sociologically what alcohol and drugs do to pregnancy and breastfeeding. So I touched nothing. But as soon as I weaned that girl from breastfeeding, I was off to the races. I mean, I drank the day that we made a decision not to breastfeed anymore. And, and I was right back at it. And when she was a little over a year old, I went out for a mixer one night and I disappeared for nine months. Mm-hmm. I don't remember much of it. I traveled all around Florida, up the East Coast. I remember that I stole a car in New Jersey because I wanted to see New York. And then I drove over the Washington Bridge into New York. I ran into a store to get some cigarettes and somebody stole my stolen car. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you can't really report that. (laughs) No, I couldn't report it. And I left my purse. I was barefoot. I left my shoes. I had just run into the store with money in my back pocket. So now I'm stuck in downtown New York City. I found out later where I was, was in the Bronx, if that means anything to anyone. And 
So I was stuck there. So, but I ran into really cool people really quickly and off and gone again. And in the meantime, my mother has divorced the naval officer. She's now remarried to her fourth husband, an architect, and she has moved to Houston, Texas. And they are all looking for me because, of course, I've disappeared. And my mother finds me in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I don't know how I wound up there, but there I was. And mom found me. She brought me back to New Orleans. She paid for an apartment. And she said, please stay put. Your husband and your daughter need you. And I didn't care about the husband particularly. Not at this point. Too much guilt and shame, certainly. But my baby girl, oh, my God. I have a picture that I keep in my phone that I will keep forever. And it was right after my mother found me and brought me back. And it was my daughter's two-year birthday party at my mother-in-law's. I was sitting on the couch, smiling for the picture, of course. No one was sitting near me. They, no one would let me have a drink. No one was speaking to me. I'm the mother that has disappeared for nine months. I'll never forget that day. It was horrible. The shame and the guilt as my little girl opened presents and everyone was there. And, you know, you could have just tattooed a horrifying person on my forehead. It was a horrible moment. I made a decision that I was not going to hitchhike anymore, that I was going to stay put. I was going to try to at least be there for my daughter. My husband had started divorce proceedings naturally since I'd been gone and had custody of my daughter naturally because I'd been gone. And, but I'm going to stay and I'm going to do the best I can. But I drank in bars. I mean, hello, it's New Orleans. <laughs> and I drank in bars every night. And, and on February 2nd, 1981, I was drinking in a bar in Fat City, New Orleans, and a, and a guy asked me if I wanted to leave that bar and go get a condiment of some sort. And I said, sure. And I left with him. And I ended up on what I call a bad date. Had a lot of bad dates in my day, but this one was a little more brutal than most. I ended up out on a dock and the guy was beating me and various other things. And, and I remember making eye contact with him. And of course, I wasn't in a blackout. I had not gotten any condiment. I was in a very bad situation. And I made eye contact with this guy. And I just said, please kill me. Because I was done. I just didn't want to wake up anymore in that world. And it freaked him out. He ran off and he left me. So I passed out for a couple of hours and I came to and I found my clothes and I hitchhiked home. God knows who gave me a ride home. I can't even imagine it. I went into my little apartment. I got in about 5 a.m. I picked up the phone and I called my mom and I said, mom, I was mugged last night because, you know, what are you going to say? Right. And I said, I'd really like to spend some quality time with you. Understand my mother is married to an architect. Nice house. Cool. And she says, get to the airport, there'll be a ticket. And I literally, a couple of hours later, went to the airport and flew to Houston, Texas. On February 3rd, 1981, when I flew to Houston, Texas, I got off the plane that day. And when I got off the plane and in the car with my mother, she was three days sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm. She didn't mention that on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Eh. But what she did was she said the words that saved my life. She said it would mean so much to me if you would come to a meeting with me tonight to support me. (laughs) She meant it. It was all about her. Thank God. 
thank God it was all about her. So on February 3rd, 1981, I went to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. It was a little, little trailer filled with smoke, sat in the parking lot of an Episcopal church in Kingwood, Texas. And I walked in listening because it wasn't my gig. You know, it was my mom's gig. And I listened. And about halfway through that meeting, God talked to me. Now, God looked like a little blonde Texas woman. But you know what she said that night in that meeting is this. She said she thought she was terminally insane. She said when she put alcohol on her body, a crazy woman took over and took her places. She didn't want to go doing things she didn't want to do. Certainly with people she didn't want to do it with. And that she thought she was going to die that way or worse, live. And that got my attention. And then she said she found out she was not terminally insane. What? She said she found out she had a disease and that that disease is alcoholism. And she said, if you have that disease, there's a reprieve. All you have to do is work these 12 steps and never have to feel like that again. And I sat in my chair hoping more than I'd ever hoped for anything in my life to please let me be an alcoholic. And at the end of that meeting, they did chips, you know, like they do. And they did a desire chip. It was a silver doubloon. And they said, if you have a desire to give up your way of life and try ours, come and get one. And I did. I ran to the front of the room and I got that chip. And on February 3rd, 1981, I became an alcoholic. I did a trade-up for alcoholism. And it was a trade-up. Trust me. And I was fired up. Remember, this is Houston. <laughs> totally fired up. I was so excited. And I dove into Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got it all wrong. I got it all wrong. I had, interestingly, I read the big book. And I misunderstood it. I thought meeting makers make it. These are some of the things they used to say around the rooms in 1981. Meeting makers make it. I still hear that on occasion. That's not in my book. I don't know. I've looked. (laughs) Say things like don't drink no matter what. Even if your butt falls off. Sorry. Uh That's what (laughs) Texas. If your (laughs) hand falls off, put it in a wheelbarrow. Bring it to a meeting. Right. Well, I lived at the clubhouses. They were open 24 hours a day. You could just stay there all night. And I did. I played poker, smoked cigarettes, talked trash. I did fellowship, fellowship, fellowship and meetings, meetings, meetings. A year sober. I'm 24 years old. I find myself in Hawaii on the big island on the Kona coast in a little village called Kailua. I followed some guy over there that I got to work. And I'm walking in paradise. It's absolutely the most beautiful place on the planet. And I want to step out in front of a bus. I want to kill myself. Because I didn't know this then. But, you know, meetings, 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 and fellowship, fellowship, fellowship. They are a marvelous tool. They are one third of a triangle necessary for full recovery. But they are not the solution for alcoholism. They are simply the substitute for alcohol as outlined in the big book. And I came to that crossroad where I couldn't imagine another day without a drink, but I couldn't imagine picking it up again. It was terrifying. 
So I went to one more meeting one more time and I asked a woman to be my sponsor. And she said, I'll sponsor you, but you're going to have to work some steps. And my life began to change. My life began to change. Mm. But I had it all wrong. First of all, I did not want a spiritual awakening. Have you read step 12? Really? (laughs) Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. No, no, I really don't want a spiritual awakening. I'm 24 years old. I don't want my virginity back. I do not want to wear turtlenecks, sweaters, and skirts down to my ankles. Ew, no. (laughs) And then we try to carry this message to alcoholics. And they would say things like, you're going to help so many alcoholic women. Oh, great. Sign me up for that. (laughs) Or like, you're going to give back so freely what was given to you. No, no. And then the third part, right? Um, And practice these principles in all our affairs. Well, that part I understood because I knew all about affairs. (laughs) Step 12. What I did want more than anything in the world was this sponsor, this goddess, this amazing woman that took me under her wing. I wanted her to like me. And she kept giving me assignments. (laughs) I had to do them. I don't lie well sober. I have sort of an expressive face. (laughs) And I knew she's going to ask me, did you do it? So I had to do it. And then I do it. She'd give me another one. And all of a sudden I found myself at step nine. And I had to leave the island and go back to the mainland because that's, of course, where all my amends were. And I did. I went back to Houston and I began the process of my amends. And what I realized and what I thought was this. You walk into a meeting and people say to you, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. We're so glad you're here. We're going to love you till you learn to love yourself. And again, I still hear that all the time. And I have yet to find the love yourself chapter in my big book. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I heard. And I thought, okay, I have this emptiness inside of me, this separation, right? And I need to feel whole again. I need to fill that donut, that wind blowing through me, you know, all these lines in the big book. And you would say, we're going to love you till you learn to love yourself. So I thought, you know, God is working through you to me. And so what I have to do is I have to work these steps and become a good girl, right? A nice girl, a real girl, because I've never done that before. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a good student. I can do what you tell me to do. And I did. I listened. I suited up. I showed up. I did everything I was instructed to do so that I would become a nice girl, a real girl. And then you would like me, you would love me, and then I would be whole again. And at seven years sober, I moved to Jacksonville, Florida for a wedding. Mine. (laughs) (laughs) my parents had moved here my mom and my stepdad of course mom's sober so she's still by the way married to the architect and they're both in their 80s now oh yeah but they introduced me to a co-worker of his a button-up sweater boy not one of us really he wore button-up sweaters like i never (laughs) a man in my life wore a button-up sweater okay not the way i rolled but they introduced me to michael and michael and i got married And it was absolutely amazing. Um, I had an amazing life. I had laurels. We had more children together, plus the two daughters that we had. And what happened is I got very, very busy taking care of all the wonderful gifts that this program had given me. They used to say a grateful drunk will never drink. That's not in my book either, by the way. And I was so busy taking care of the gifts this program gave me that I fell further and further away 
from the program that gave me the gifts. And at 13 and a half years sober, I picked up a drink. Mm-hmm. And when I picked up that drink, I was simply thirsty. And it was the only thing that was sitting there. And I drank it. And I drank a very small amount. And it was liquid. It was not alcohol. It was completely delusional. It was cunning, baffling, and powerful. And it scared me to death. And I didn't drink much. And I didn't drink long. And I ran back to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And on September 28, 1996, when I literally ran back to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I conceded to my innermost self that I'm an alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. And what I know about my disease is that it is cunning, baffling, and powerful, and that I have to stay in the middle no matter what. And if I do that, I get to be happy, joyous, and free. And the best lesson that I learned of all is that it is not God through you to me. I missed that the first time around. It is God through me to you. Mm. And that's like a pipe with the water faucet on. As long as water is continually running through, there's never an empty space, ever. And the magic that keeps that pipe flowing all the time for me is love. My job to fit myself to be of maximum service to God and the people about me sounds like work. Sounds like work with others, work with others, work with others. But it's just simply love others. And as long as I do that, I'm never empty and I'm filled with joy. Thank you so much, Holly. This has been fantastic. The tool that I'm using is making me stop earlier than I would like to normally, but God bless you. I so much appreciate you being on today. Uh, I hope our paths cross again very, very soon. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, thank you, Holly D. That was so enjoyable. I appreciate you coming on and sharing your experience, strength, and hope with the listeners here. And if you enjoyed that, and who would not have enjoyed that, please take some time to pause your device and hit that little share button uh, and share it with a friend or family member. It may be just what they need today. Now on to a little bit of listener feedback, and this is not really someone writing in, but I got this out of the super secret Facebook group. Nelson posted in the Facebook group. Uh, this is both a, 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 um, a line from the big book and then him some commentary right after that. It says, ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. That's on page 164 of the big book. Let me read that again. You know, sometimes I've heard it many times, but sometimes you just kind of pass on by it. um, And this is a really important sentence in the big book. It says, ask him, God, in your morning meditation, what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. Once again, that's Alcoholics Anonymous, page 164. And then Nelson wrote after this, he says, For many years I pondered over God's will for me, believing that perhaps a great destiny had been ordained for my life. After all, having been born into a specific faith, hadn't I been told early that I was, quote, chosen, unquote. It finally occurred to me as I considered the above passage that God's will for me was simply that I practice step 
12 on a daily basis. Furthermore, I realized that I should do this to the best of my ability. I soon learned that the practice aids me in keeping my life in the context of the day at hand. Thanks for putting that in the secret Facebook group, Nelson. I do appreciate you. Now on to uh, Dahlia writes, and I hope I'm reading this. I hope I'm pronouncing that name correct. It's D-A-L-I-A. Dahlia? Dahlia? Could be. I don't know. Anyway, Dahlia writes in and she says, John M., I live in the metro Detroit area, Bloomfield Hills, about 25 northwest of Detroit. Yes, Dahlia, I've been there and I am actually pretty sure I've been to an AA meeting up there. Uh, I've just traveled a lot and I'm, I'm picturing this church as the top floor of a church and there weren't very many people there. There's probably six, seven, eight people, something like that. But anyway, it was a church out there in Bloomfield Hills. Anyway, she says, I found Sober Speak through a recommendation from my friend, Sean S., Sean S. is a fellow home group member. So many speakers have resonated with me, especially Charlie and Katie P., Marty C., Matthew M., Earl H., June G., Don M., Billy K., and so many more. It's hard to pick certain ones since there have been a number of fantastic shares. I've recommended your podcast to several to several fellows in my circle. The ladies I sponsor have always thanked me for sharing this podcast, especially those with young kids or work commutes or both. They have stated it's extremely helpful to have your quote meeting between meetings. My sobriety date is six to June 2nd of 2016. I am so blessed to have found a solid group of sober men and women in my area. I I sponsor several ladies and I do have a sponsor. Interestingly, I was looking for a new sponsor during lockdown and I found her on Zoom in spring of 2020 and I have worked with her since then. One of my greatest blessings this year was to have the chance to meet her in person. My husband sent me along with my sons to the United Kingdom. The real purpose of the trip was to take my son to see his favorite soccer team, Manchester City. But the added bonus was that I got to meet my sponsor, who happens to live 40 minutes from Manchester City. I will share a few photos with you to get a sense of the joy and gratitude. AA has given me a new outlook and attitude towards life. It has been a gift from day one. I have never felt so good. Thank you for your service. I look forward to seeing you on December 2nd for the live event. Uh, she's talking about, just in case you miss it at the beginning, there's a live event we have coming up on December 2nd. Go to SoberSpeak.com, click on the tab, uh, SoberSpeak live event. Anyway, uh, I'll look forward to seeing you on December 2nd at the live event. I know you're just another bozo on the bus, but to me, you're an inspiration and a rock star. <laughs> Big capital letters and a big star. Well, you know, I I appreciate that, Dahlia, but that is an insult to rock rock to rock stars. We're gonna have to redefine. <laughs> 
<laughs> what a rock star is. Oh, you're sweet, though. She, I'm just a goofy guy. Like, I'm sitting here with my microphone just looking around <laughs> in my studio. A, a, you know, I, I just, I, what I happened to figure out was how... <laughs> how to get things on the internet and do a podcast. And uh, But anyway, I appreciate it. She says, also, I want to send a shout out to the lovely Mrs. M. Yes, now she is a rock star. She says, I'm so fortunate to have a supportive husband and therefore would like to share my gratitude for your wife, especially due to all the behinds the scene works that she does to support your calling uh, and uh, big... Uh, 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 praying hands and heart and all that sort of stuff. And I also want to throw in while we're at it there, and the lovely Mrs. M does all kinds of stuff. But there's also another person that helps to support me during this, and that is uh, Cassandra. Uh, Cassandra does all kinds of work in the background with the... Uh, the various posts that she does and uh, it's just she goes on and on and on and she's got this she showed me the spreadsheet that she has to keep organized on the post to make sure that she uh, she knows my catalog when I say catalog, uh, all the various episodes are much better than I do. And uh, anyway, I'm supported to the, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to the lovely Mrs. M and Cassandra. And uh, I'm glad I just get to do what I do here in front of the uh, microphone. Anyway, Dahlia goes on, thanks again and hope to meet you soon along the road to happy destiny. Yours in fellowship, Dahlia D. Well, I hope to meet you as well, Dahlia D. And then she puts, she attached three photos. One was with her husband and her kids. And then there was a photo uh, at a coffee shop in Manchester with her sponsor. And then there was a shot of her kids, and I'm not going to say their names, uh, at the Manchester at the Manchester uh, City Stadium. Uh, and it was great. I, more of you have been sending in pictures lately, and, and I appreciate it. It gives me a uh, I don't know. It just gives me a perspective on you and your life. So anyway, Dahlia D, uh, hope to meet you someday as well in person. God bless you. God bless your family. I appreciate all the info. Peter writes in and Peter says, hi, John, I'm based in Bedford, England. And I've had, I wonder if he knows uh, the sponsor uh, in Manchester. I, I it, well, <laughs> like everybody in England knows each other. I hear it's a pretty big country. I don't even, I don't know where Bedford is in relation to uh, Manchester, but nonetheless, he says, I'm based in Bedford, England, and I've had a few relapses, but I have a sponsor. I help out in my home group and I keep on going to meetings. I tend to do, oh, I tend to do about three months sober and then I have relapses. Um, I've heard of that pattern before. In fact, I was on it myself, Mr. Peter, but they are never worth it and remind me why I should have never taken that first drink. Fortunately, we have quite a few meetings in Bedford and the welcome I get in particular when I have a relapse is why I keep trying and coming back. Good for you, Peter. He says, with my sponsor, uh, I've been doing the book study lately and I will begin the steps shortly. Through my work, I have to be in the office in London two days a week 
and I have found a meeting at lunchtime just 10 minutes walk. So that is helpful too. At 43 years of age, I am not giving up. I'm determined to keep on trying and to work the program. I can always tell when it's somebody from England because they put an E on the end of the program. Nonetheless, M-E on the... Anyway, uh, thanks for your podcast. I usually listen to them first thing in the morning to get me in the right frame of mind for the day. Well, hopefully you'll be able to hear this soon, Peter. In particular, the days where I commute to London on the train. The speakers are very impressive and always very positive, friendly, and very smart. I try to take notes while listening and then read through them afterwards for future inspiration and learning. Good for you, Peter. The other day when I had a relapse, a family member said I was hopeless, but unfortunately, AA means... Uh, um, but, but fortunately, AA means despite my setbacks, I still have hope. Good for you. So not quite hopeless as you should not be. And once again, I've talked about this many times. I was actually three years in and out myself. I know a lot of people. In fact, I just saw somebody pick up a 10 month chip, uh, this morning. I'm just going to go ahead and say her name because I don't think she'd mind, uh, Lacey at our, uh, group today. And Lacey had been in and out for years and years and years. She got a 10 month chip and I have no doubt she's going to get 11 month in a one year, but we all do this one day at a time. And so it's always great to see. I, I don't want anybody to go through that torture of those years of going in and out and not being able to get it. But there is a sweet smell of success, if you will, when somebody does finally get it. And I was one of those people. So keep it up, Peter. Anyway, he says, thanks again. And I look forward to the podcast going through the older ones too. So have to, to, so have plenty to make my train journeys enjoyable. Yes. You got a quite a few episodes out there, Peter, that you can enjoy. Best wishes, best wishes, Peter H in Bedford. England. Well, God bless you, Peter. Keep up the good work. Sounds like you're doing all the right things, my friend. All right, everybody. That there was another week of a sober, a speak. And um, what do I always say? Keep, oh, I try to take this one week at a time. Hopefully I'll be back next week. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. And then, oh, there's one other thing. Oh, may God, <laughs> I should, you know, I should like write this down someday. <laughs> that would be great. Now, a professional podcaster, somebody who is really good at this, would not have mistakes like I had on the beginning of this episode and not make flub ups and all that stuff. And they'd actually write things down. But <laughs> I'm just kind of winging it. Anyway, uh, it's may God bless you and keep you until then. Love you guys. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.